this way. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning. This is found in the very heart. Thank you, Dan. That's good. Of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we know the original audience was made up of disciples of Christ. Please understand that our normal image which comes to our minds is not really the image that should come to our mind when we hear the word disciples. Most of you would say the disciples are the apostles. And you would be right. They were part of this group. But disciples were not limited to that group who were closely related to Jesus and who became His emissaries to spread the gospel of Christ throughout the world and to be the agents of giving us what we now know as our New Testament in writing. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. The word that we think of when we think about people who follow Christ is the word Christian. The word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. It was a name which was given in derision by the inhabitants of Antioch regarding the fledgling church there. It was a put-down, actually. But the word disciple appears over 260 times in the New Testament. The vast majority of those appearances have to do with you and me, as it were. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are in fact His disciples. Because a disciple is a lifelong learner, one who has apprenticed himself or herself to Jesus and seeks to carry out His will in the world. Not too long ago, there was a bishop of a Catholic diocese who visited one of the local churches in the parish. When the time came to receive the offering that particular Sunday, he stood and he prayed over it. When time came for him to conclude his prayer before the offering was taken, he chanted, I'm the bishop of this diocese and I only make $800 a week. And that's not enough. Well, the parish priest, we would call him a pastor in our tradition, not to be undone, jumped into the middle of the liturgy. You don't do that in the Roman Catholic Church. You follow by the book. But he spontaneously stood up right behind the bishop. And he chanted his own version of what he had heard. I'm the pastor of this parish and I only make $400 a week, and that's not enough. (laughs) The offering was being taken, and the organist from the balcony began to play appropriate music, and then could not restrain himself. And he said, I'm the organist of this church, and I make $1,200 a week, and there's no business like show business, (laughs) like no business I know. Show business does have its rewards. But they are temporary and they are taxing. Anybody who is in show business knows you may wow a crowd, but you've got to step up again and try to outdo yourself from your previous performance. Do you understand that we who know Jesus Christ are 
called to minister and care for others in His name. I'm not talking about people like me. I'm talking about all people who know Jesus and are His disciples. The rewards which result from our doing acts of worship sometimes are the rewards of entertaining people rather than doing what God would have us to do. Christ's disciple has an audience of one. It is God whom we do these things, acts of worship for. In this passage of Scripture, we're going to determine what the goal of our acts of worship should be. There are two main goals stated positively and negatively. Let's begin with the negative. The goal of our acts of worship must not be the applause of men. Secondly, and really primarily, the goal of our acts of worship must be the approval of God. That's what Jesus teaches in this passage. So let's dig into it, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The first word, beware, is a tense of the verb that Jesus chose, which literally means always beware. Always keeping alert. This is the idea as it relates to practicing our righteousness before people to be noticed by them. We must exercise great caution when we serve the Lord, whether it's in a visible way like I'm doing now or a less visible way. We must always do it with this in mind. There is danger associated with serving the Lord in the wrong way for the applause of people. Why? Well, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 26, 41. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What did he mean? What's he talking about? The spirit is willing. We are made up, as the scripture tells us, of three parts. Spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is that place in a person designed to house God. The soul is something that all human beings hold in common, whether they know God or not. And the body, obviously, we all have a body. We all have a body. We all have a soul. But the Spirit is the place reserved solely for God's presence. And when he talks about the Spirit here, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit of God, who indeed does desire and deserve a place of prominence in our lives, in our spirit. But he's talking about the spirit of man. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we quoted together Galatians 2.20, Paul's statement about the life which he now lived in the flesh, he lived by the faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for us, for Paul particularly, and for us too, by association The word flesh is not used as it normally is in the New Testament. 
In that case, it has to do with that which covers our bodies, our skeletal system, our digestive system, all the various systems beneath the surface of what we see in each other. And it's important. That body is very important. However, the idea of the flesh, which is most often used, and it's the way in which Jesus uses it in the verse which I mentioned a moment ago, is mankind apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. When I get out from under the management of the Holy Spirit and start freelancing, living my way on my terms, then I'm living out in the flesh. Now let me stop here just a minute. This is very important. We typically associate fleshly behavior with what we call carnal behavior, and we would be right to do that. But I'm going to put forth this idea today, that the more dangerous expression of my life outside the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God is religious flesh. That's exactly what Jesus addresses in this passage of Scripture. Things that are religious, practices that were, which are religious, things which we are expected to do, by the way, by none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. He did them. But it's very, very normal for us to do these things in our own way, in our own strength, in our own power. And it's very dangerous. Our flesh loves center stage. It quickly acquires a taste for having an audience and a reputation. It screams, look at me. Jesus talks about hypocrites. Do you know that Jesus is the only one recorded in Scripture who speaks about hypocrites? Uh, Seventeen times he uses the word in its singular and or plural form. Quite frankly, it was not a bad word in the common days of Christ in the world. It was a word which had to do with the theater. And in those days, the cast of plays was not very large. It was very normal for an actor to assume more than one role. And there was a different mask which was held depicting the one whom that actor was portraying. And this would come back and forth. So the idea of a hypocrite was an actor on a stage. And we, Jesus says, if we behave in a certain way, living our lives out in the flesh, depending on ourselves, marketing ourselves, then we are actors that are hypocritical. And Jesus really had low tolerance and still does for hypocrites, especially religious hypocrites. Hypocrites say, we're not good enough, but this is what I'd like to be in your sight. Talking about the audience of people. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus chooses three categories of religious action. Religious acts, if you will. It is not a comprehensive look, but it really gives us an understanding of this whole matter of not practicing our righteousness before others to be noticed by them. Look at verse 2. 
the first category is the category of alms is the word that is used in the New American Standard Bible for which I'm teaching today. But that connotes a very narrow band of what would constitute alms if we use the word that's actually used by Jesus in the New Testament. When we think of alms, we think about what we will do at the end of this worship service today when we give an offering, which we call a benevolence or compassion offering, to help people who find themselves in hard times, either who are members of our church or people outside our church. We have that opportunity every time we observe communion on a monthly basis. But alms, in Jesus' mind, would have certainly included taking care of the poor. But any good deed intended to serve other people would be included in this general category of alms. It's hard to be quiet regarding such acts. Are you like that? I just have to really restrain myself when I do something that I think will impress other people that's religious. If I'm inclined, and I know the Holy Spirit does indeed incline me at times to do acts of alms, and I do it and I think, man, I really helped her. I really helped them. So quickly forgetting that it was the Spirit of God who impressed me to do that and gave me the resources to do that and gave me the will to do it. But aren't we like that? Don't we want the attention to come to us? We've just got to tell somebody what we have done to help other people. Don't let your flesh know what your spirit is doing or your flesh will puff you up and praise you. Let's read verses 2 through 4. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you. This is exactly what this group of people that Jesus was correcting did. They would hire trumpeters to go to the place of doing good to draw attention to their good deeds. He says, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. According to Jewish theological thought of the day, the right hand stood for that which is good. The left hand stood for that which was bad or evil. And it represents to us, the left hand would represent works of the flesh. In this case, particularly religious works. And the right hand would represent works done by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit working through us. Christ living His life out through us in acts of goodness on His behalf to other people. There's no limit to what you can do or I can do if we don't want credit for it. It's so counterintuitive to us not to want a little bit of credit for what we do. But there's one step beyond that little bit of credit to wanting more and more. It's like a raging hunger that grows in our flesh that loves and thrives on that kind of situation. Let's look at the second category. Verse 5, 
And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, places of worship, and on the street corners, in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Jesus sounds like a broken record here. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Does the Lord want us to pray? Why, obviously He does. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, what we call the Old Testament, He says, Call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. David says about himself in Psalm 109, verse 4, He says, I am prayer. He was a man who lived in a state of prayer. The Bible says in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Pray without ceasing. Certainly, we are commanded to pray. But it's a certain kind of prayer. It's a type of prayer that is not in any way inclined to be noticed by others. It doesn't want to be noticed. Jesus says hypocrites love to pray to be noticed by men. When Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States, his press secretary was Bill Moyers, Moyers was a graduate of Southern Baptist, Southwestern rather, Baptist Theological Seminary, the seminary that I had the privilege of attending. And at this time, President Johnson was having a meeting of his cabinet members and other high-ranking officials, and they broke for lunch at the White House, and they went from where they were meeting into another room, and it was a big room, and there was a lot of good food prepared. But LBJ sitting at the opposite end of the table from Bill Moyers, his press secretary, called to him. He said, Bill, please say grace before we eat. And Bill Moyers did as he was asked, really told by the president, and he bowed his head. He began to pray. About a minute into the prayer, President Johnson interrupted him and said, Bill, speak up. We can't hear you down here. And Moyer said very wryly and correctly, Sir, I was not talking to you. <laughs> when we pray, we're talking to the Lord. Does God want us to pray publicly? Let me ask you. Why, well, yes, He does. We see it in the first church. On the day of Pentecost, when the church was formed, 120 were in the upper room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and they were praying together. And God's Spirit fell upon them in the mightiest of ways. In chapter 3, and again in chapter 4 of Acts, we see how the people of God were praying together. This was not uncommon, not out of keeping with the will of God. But they were talking to the Lord. They weren't praying to impress other people. Here's a couple of tests which I use And this teaching has really touched my life in a raw place, I might add. Here's the question. Do I pray more frequently and fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I prefer the place of private prayer to the place of public prayer? Is my public prayer the overflow of my private prayer time? Could so few answers to my prayers, be linked to my need for the applause of others. 
Here's a third area. Jesus talks about it in the 16th through the 18th verses, so let's take a look at it. And whenever you fast, stop putting on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. These hypocrites whom Jesus was calling on the carpet, when they fasted, they fasted every Monday and every Thursday. And on those days, they didn't wash their faces. They didn't comb their hair. They didn't do anything except put on a gloomy face to draw attention to the fact that they were making a great sacrifice for God. And they wanted credit from people as a result. There's a place for fasting. Just like there's a place for praying. Jesus assumes in verse 16 about His disciples, what does He say? Whenever you fast, the assumption is you're going to fast. It's not a legalistic kind of thing that... These hypocrites were accustomed to, but you will fast. I like what Frederick Dale Bruner suggests about this idea of fasting. He said it could be equated with any spiritual discipline. Memorizing scripture, having a quiet time, service, all kinds of spiritual disciplines which have grown up and have a legitimacy, I might add, according to the Bible for the people of God throughout the 20 centuries of the church. But anything that calls us to make a sacrifice, it takes self-discipline and denial to spend time alone with the Lord because there's so many other things which grab and cry for our attention. But we need to be careful not to elevate those things to the level that if we do them, we get the applause of our brothers and sisters in Christ and they think, my, how spiritual he is. My, how disciplined she is. We need to be careful about that. Fasting. Hypocrites make sure that others know how great a sacrifice they're making. What about preaching? It's not in here. But it's by suggestion it is. I think about myself. I've been a pastor of a local church for over 40 years. That's a long time. 26 here in this church. 50 days a week, year, weeks a year, let's say, Sundays a year, times 40, five, that's a lot of sermons. <laughs> and I've, many cases, preached, like this weekend, I preached three times. So triple that. When I first became a pastor, I preached on Wednesday night, Sunday morning twice, and Sunday night again. That was four times for seven years. That's a lot of preaching. And the question I have to ask myself and need to regularly, and I try to, is am I practicing my righteousness before others to be noticed by them? And even saying that sounds self is self-serving in a way. You'll have to figure that out if you don't understand what I'm saying about that. A great preacher of the Word of God, his name was Campbell Morgan. He lived in the late 19th and to the middle of the 20th century, a great preacher of the gospel in Great Britain. As a young man, he was possessed, even as a 20-something, with a great gift for communicating. And people would listen 
quietly spellbound by his presentation. He was not a pastor of the church of any city at any time, but he was given opportunities to go maybe two, three times a week to different places to speak. And he did it to a great extent to develop his skill as a communicator. And I might say, being a pastor is not about being a great communicator, frankly, primarily. It's about being a person who knows if he has nothing that he can learn from the Spirit of God, from the Word of God, that he can teach other people, then he might as well be doing something else because it's worse. It's wasted. It's worthless. When Morgan came from a place of preaching during the week one night, he had asked a friend of his to come with him. They had walked together from where they had met to get to this place in London where he was going to preach. It was the day before motivated uh, or motor-driven kinds of traffic. And they were walking home afterwards, and he knew that he'd done a great job. So Morgan turned to his friend knowing what he was fishing for. He wanted affirmation and the admiration, actually, of his friend. He said, well, how did I do? And his friend said this to him. He said, you did a beautiful job of speaking truth to the people. However, my sense was that you were more interested in impressing the people than expressing the truth. There aren't too many preachers in the room, but there are some who aspire to that and some who are currently preachers. Look, guys, we're here for the purpose of expressing the truth. And to the level that I have over the years, and I've done it way too often, tried to impress people, it's just up in smoke, as it were. The flesh craves instant satisfaction. The mark of maturity in a believer is the ability to be content with your circumstances. Be content where you are with what you have. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Immature believers want recognition and gratification now. Recognition for acts of service now. Heaven can wait. It's not enough for us to hear the Father's well done in our spirit or to delay recognition of our service to the Lord until we meet Him face to face, either in death or at the judgment seat of Christ. Our Father is invisible. We know that. And I believe He's attracted to unseen acts of worship more than public acts like I'm involving myself in today. The Father is impressed with that which we consider unimpressive. He's looking for the heart. What's in the heart? The mature believer is satisfied simply and solely with the presence of God. It's enough to be a child of God, to be like a weaned child resting on its mother's breast without wanting anything from the mother or from God in the analogy. Why must we not have men's applause as our goal? Because that applause belongs to God. God will not share His glory with another. That's what He says my glory I will not share with another, he says in Isaiah 48, 11. Nebuchadnezzar learned that, didn't he? That's a wild story, isn't it? Here's this great man, 
arguably one of the greatest emperors in the history of the world. And one day he's walking probably around a parapet on his palace. He can see all over this beautiful city. And then beyond the borders of the city, he can see beyond. And he imagines what his kingdom is like. He says, wow, look at this great Babylon which my hands have made. And just like that, he becomes insane. And for seven years, and by the way, there is a condition that describes what he encountered In the psychiatric community, there's a condition called lycanthropy where people believe their animals actually believe and they behave like animals. They graze in some cases like he did, like a cow or a bull. They graze. But what happened to him? After seven years, and we don't know what stimulated it. I know, I think it was God just stimulating him. He looked to heaven and he began to praise God and worship God. He'd been worshiping himself. God brooks no rivals as we've seen. And his sanity was restored to him. Nebuchadnezzar's self-esteem was tied to his accomplishments before he had this great cataclysmic experience of becoming like an animal in his own mind. I grow weary of hearing people who talk about self-esteem and how to build self-esteem. Really, the problem is we need to get our minds off ourselves and on God. And if we know God, look, this is the answer to good self-image. It's clearly spelled out in the Bible and most clearly spelled out, I think, in the 139th Psalm. When we really know who God is, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And there is only one way to know the one true God. And it's through the person of Jesus Christ who is God incarnate. He came for the express purpose to reveal God to us so that we could have the option of knowing Him. And then coming to know Him, we have this wonderful thing called eternal life. That's not simply life after death. That is... In some people's minds who do not know God, something that doesn't quite appeal because of the emptiness of their lives in this world. But the idea is something which gives you that which you've been looking for all your life. You know there's something more and you've tried everything, relationships, religion, education, the acquisition of security in the way of money, in other forms of security, and you find yourself without such security. The reason being is we are created to find our security in the Lord, our self-image. Last night, Tyson Fury won for the second time the heavyweight championship of the world. Very interesting man. I just seen little bits and pieces about him. But today I wanted to know a little bit about him. This guy must be for real. He looked like a big fat guy to me, and I've never seen a heavyweight champion who kind of jiggled when he boxed. I mean, they're usually really cut. His opponent, who had himself been a champion until last night, his name was Deontay Wilder. He was cut. I mean, this guy looked like he stayed in the gym all the time. And he beat him. He knocked him down twice. And at the end of the eighth round, 
the corner of Wilder threw the towel in. This guy it can't go any further. This is what I learned about this 6'9". That's six and three quarters feet tall. 260 pound man. This giant. What I learned about him when he was born, he only weighed one pound. He was given the name Tyson because his father, who was a boxer himself, admired Mike Tyson. Tyson Fury. He overcame that disability early in his life. And we know what has happened. He's become a champion. Listen to what he said after he had won his first championship a few years ago. No one wants to see a gypsy do well. He's a gypsy. You know what his nickname is? The Gypsy King. I didn't know there were any gypsies in Great Britain. That shows how dull I am. He said, I'm a gypsy and that's it. I'll always be a gypsy. I'll never change. I'm all... I will always be a fat, white gypsy. That's it. I'm the champ, yet I am thought of as a bum. That's the way he probably thinks of himself. Because he's heard that. He's trying to validate himself. And he's done a good job of it in the sports world. He dropped out of school at the age of 11 because of his parents' wandering ways. I thought about the greatest of all heavyweights in the history of boxing, Rocky Balboa. (laughs) And do you remember when Rocky was on the mat about to give up after he'd been knocked down? I think it was by Apollo Creed. I'm not sure. It's been a long time. And then his trainer, Mick. Remember Mick? Burgess Meredith played that role. And Mick got right close to Rocky. He says, get up, you bum. Mick loves you. And he got up. I don't know that he won that fight. If that was the first Rocky, he got beat. But he went on to beat Apollo Creed later, didn't he? Here's the point. God says to a man like Tyson Fury, I don't know what his relationship with God is, but my heart went out to him. When I read this this morning, I thought my heart really... Wanted to, I wish I could have a little time with him. Just share the good news of Jesus that we are accepted in the Beloved. And all that, that of us, all that crud, all the things that people think about us doesn't amount to anything. They don't amount to anything because of God's love for us. He is our Father and He loves us. Well, I have a whole lot more to say. And one of the hazards of teaching a message three times is it gets bigger every time. (laughs) But let me just finish with a couple of salient points about the second thing, about the goal of acts of worship must be for God's approval. God wants us to glorify Him. He says, as I've mentioned probably today, my glory I will not give to another. The goal of our acts of worship must be God's approval. We are not to play to the masses, but to the Master. We're not to play to the crowd, but to the Lord. We're to sing and make melody in our hearts all the time. In our hearts, note that. Sometimes with our mouths, but always in our hearts to the Lord. Like master, like disciple, Jesus the God-man lived to glorify the Father. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never did anything on His own? 
He states it repeatedly in the Gospel of John. I only do what I hear the Father say. And I only do what I see the Father doing. He lived in a state of dependence upon the Lord. Have you noticed how Jesus avoided crowds? At the urging of His earthly brothers, He said no as they were urging Him to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the most festive of all the required feasts for Jewish males 20 years of age or older. He said no. Anytime's good for you, but not for me. Jesus preferred solitude with God to the platitudes of people. Our God sees in secret He will reward us openly when we meet Him face to face. Discipleship is primarily a matter of the heart, not the hand. Our approval rating with other people may be a good gauge of our approval rating with God. Woe to you if all men speak well of you, the Lord says. That's nothing to aspire to. I was raised thinking you want to be well thought of. We don't have to go and insult people. We just follow Christ. And by our association with Him, we will suffer hardship in this world. The most godly people in history have been, in many cases, the loneliest. Look at the Moses. Look at Daniel. Look at Jesus. But they were never alone, were they? Because the Lord was with them. And they had the approval of God. I want to share a quick story to conclude. It's about a man named H.C. Harrison. Harrison was a lifelong missionary in China. As he was coming home, he found that he had been placed on the boat that President Theodore Roosevelt was on. Roosevelt was coming from a safari in Africa, and somehow or another they had gotten on the same ship, and they were arriving on this ship in the harbor of New York. There was all kinds of fanfare. And as H.C. Morrison watched what was going on, he thought, there's nobody who's going to meet me here at the deboarding site. Nobody was coming to meet him. He got to thinking about how all the work that he had done had gone unnoticed by other people in the U.S. And he was in a hole of self-pity. And then this is what he sensed the Spirit of God saying to him. Really, the Father saying to him. Listen carefully. In his heart, he sensed God was saying to him, Son, you're not home yet. It's not until we get to be with the Lord that we'll really have clarity about what our lives were based on. Selfishness, ego, flesh, or a life submitted in humility to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the teaching of this passage from Jesus by the Spirit to us. We ask that You would help us to be men and women who are men who and women who gladly and willingly submit ourselves to You so that we can be a means of glory for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.